Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Jimmy Manu Master is a fourth generation Parsi in Hong Kong. The Parsis are a small community here, numbering about 240 people. They first came with the British in the 1840s. Jimmy's mother was one of the first three Parsi women to come to Hong Kong. In this programme, Jimmy and I sit down together at his office in Admiralty to talk about his life and the Parsi community, their customs, traditions and food. I have a small asset management company in partnership with a partner who lives in Zurich. I maintain the Hong Kong office and he maintains an office in Zurich. And uh, we're a small boutique shop mainly catering to high net worth clients. And we run portfolios for them on an advisory or discretionary basis. Most of our clients are in Hong Kong, the Philippines, Singapore. We have some clients in uh, Switzerland and in Germany. And how long have you done that for? Uh, We've done this now for 20 years. Yeah, and uh, I've known my partner now for the past um, 34 years, which is a long time. So we have a very good, close working relationship with each other. So your fourth generation here in Hong Kong, can you tell me a little bit about your family? Um, From what I understand of of our family history, my great-grandfather's brother came to Hong Kong and the Canton region around 1910. I understand he came out working for Johnson, Stokes and Masters. Which was? Which was the legal firm in in Hong Kong. Uh, In what capacity he had come in, I, I really don't know. And I don't even think the family knows. A couple of years after he came to, to, to this part of the world, he brought his younger brother out, my grandfather, who came out and they decided at that time to establish a trading business in Hong Kong. There was a great demand from the Chinese uh, for things like cotton yarn and all sorts of other imports which they used to bring in from India and then they used to export from China a lot of things like silks and spices and saris and things like that to India. Around 1926, my grandfather brought his young bride, my grandmother, out from India. And at that time in Hong Kong, the Parsi community was quite small. It comprised mainly of men. And I think my grandmother at that time was the third lady who had actually been brought out from India to live in this part of the world. Because at that time, most of the men came out on their own. They stayed out in Asia for a couple of years and then went back maybe once every two or three years to see their families, see their wives, and perhaps procreate more children at that time. But from the 20s onwards, I think it became more and more the custom that ladies were brought out from India, and slowly you began to see the formation of a complete family-oriented Parsi community in Hong Kong. And that has continued right up to this day. So where did uh, your... It was a fourth generation, yes. so what's that, your great-grandfather... Um, so my grandmother was born, uh, grandparents were both born in India. My mother was born in Hong Kong. She's still alive. She's now 92. Uh, then I was born in uh, 55. And uh, I've had my own children who were born in 85 and 89, respectively. And where would you have originated your family from, from in, in what part of India? Uh, well, my maternal side of the family came from Bombay and my paternal side came from Darjeeling. And uh, being Parsis, we we, we are the the descendants of those refugees who left Iran about 1,200 years ago and came to India and settled along the coastline of Gujarat. And that's where we actually have originated from, Iran. But, of course, having lived in India for the last 1,200 years, it's quite likely that, you know, our descendants have actually married within the Indian community and we are therefore the offspring of, of those people. 
Now, your, so your family has been based here, in essence, since 1926? Yes, that's right. Correct, yes. And uh, do you have a relationship with India, or are you just a Hong Kong boy? I would say I'm more of a Hong Kong boy than anything else. We have retained our ethnicity, we have retained our identity, our culture, our way of life, our food, our customs, our faith. India is still very much there, but I don't necessarily associate with it. I, I'm, I'm very much a Hong Kong boy. I was born here, I was brought up here, schooled here, and I continue to live and work here. So where did you go to school? My initial primary schooling was at Glen Ely School, and then I went to St. Joseph's College, and then in my last two years to do my A-levels, I went off to uh, the island school. And thereafter, I went to Canada to take my undergraduate degree and then to the UK to do my postgraduate degrees. And what were they in? Uh, I took my undergrad in economics and then my postgrad as an MBA in the UK. Now, with the name Jimmy Manu, Master, can you explain that to yes. me? Uh, Minu is the name of my father. In, in Parsi and Indian custom, we always put the name of the father as your middle name. So therefore, you take your first name, which is Jimmy. Minu is your father's name, and then Master is the surname. This even applies to the girls. And uh, both my daughters uh, resent the fact that they have to put Jimmy in as their middle name because they, they, they find it most unusual that, you know, they have a male name in a female name. And they've constantly resented that. But uh, it, is, it is our custom and we continue to follow this custom. Now, the surname Master has, has actually come as a result of the British uh, codifying the, the, the names of the Indians back in time. Because previously, Indians of all faiths did not have a surname. You were known as Jimmy the Son of so-and-so. And when they started to do censuses, they, they decided to give everybody a surname. So you were given a name either from the place that you came from or from your profession. So I would imagine that our ancestors somewhere back in time were either school teachers or, or people who were instructive in, in an educational environment. And that's how the name must have come. But if you look within our own Parsi community, uh, you will see many trade names. You will see names of places where people have come from. And this practice has continued. Generally, with the Parsi community, are you happy to be rather quiet about it. Yes, I think as a rule, we're, we're actually a very small community here. For the longest time, we, we numbered between 120 to 150 people. Now we have grown to about 240, uh, primarily because a large number of young Parsi families have been sent out from India to work either in the banking and finance industry or in the logistics industry or in the tech industry, and therefore our community has grown. But uh, if, if I look at the old traditional established families, I think we would perhaps number in the order of between 120 and 150, including children. And we, we have, I think, as a policy, maintained a rather low profile. Um, we, we, we enjoy, you know, our, our own company. And the community has a wonderful community center in Causeway Bay. We have our own cemetery. We have our own facilities for, for community use. And I think that the community has also, in economic terms, uh, declined in the importance that it plays in Hong Kong's history. I think if you look back in time, there were far, far more Parsis in the China region. And most of them were involved in trade. Many of them had done extremely well. And I think after the First War, Second War, the majority of them went back to India. So what you have really are just a small number of people who resided in Hong Kong during both wars and some of those who left Shanghai and came to Hong Kong post the Second World War. 
Now, you were saying with your, if I understood, your grandfather was, he would have been involved in trading here. So so cotton yarn, saris, going back to India. That's yes. interesting. So the saris were made in Hong Kong. Uh, what what they used to do was that the, the, the Parsis did a lot of embroidery work in Hong Kong and in southern China because the needlework and finger work of the Chinese workers were far superior to what you would get in India. So they used to make sari borders in this part of the world and export them. And that was a huge business for many, many people. And that skill has been lost. And today in many Parsi households, it's, it's actually quite uh, a point of pride to unearth these old sari borders and put them onto saris today and wear them at formal occasions. And uh, what would you wear at a formal occasion? The Parsis wear a very simple garment. It's, it's a, a white pants and a long white coat along with a black hat and and this would be worn at all occasions this would be worn both for a wedding as well as for a funeral and it's always made of white and a very Is it cotton or? it's made of cotton or polyester today of course you would have polyester cotton but otherwise it would be just a cotton garment yes and of course the ladies would dress up in their saris now you were saying about so your grandfather was a, a trader. Will we move on to the next generation? Your your parents. Yes. So my grandfather's business uh, was then taken on by my parents, but it was finally closed. I think in the late nineties. I think trading has become an increasingly more and more difficult business in Hong Kong. Most of the Parsis acted as intermediaries, positioning themselves between the factory or the producer and the buying party overseas. And I think uh, what has happened in Hong Kong is that that nature of business has slowly closed because most people have either backward integrated into taking over their sources of production or they have forward integrated into taking on their sources of distribution. But to sort of sit in between as a middleman, uh, your margins begin to shrink quite quickly and uh, the business doesn't make much sense any longer. Where you were talking about the, these embroidery that, that used to exist. Is that still possible to see in this region? Yes, most Parsi families would have these embroideries at home. Yes, they do. As a community, when you come together, what, what kind of festivals do you have in the year? Parsis enjoy eating and drinking and getting together. No matter where they live, no matter where they are, this is something that they do enjoy. So as far as festivals are concerned, they celebrate everything. They will celebrate the Chinese festivals, they'll celebrate the Western festivals, as well as our own. Our New Year falls sometime in the month of August, and uh, we have an Iranian New Year, Nowruz, which is celebrated on the 21st of March, which is the spring equinox. In addition to those two festivals, uh, we also celebrate the birthday of our prophet, which also falls towards the end of August. And there are a number of religious festival days, which are celebrated on a monthly basis. Parsis enjoy eating meat and lots of meat and minimum vegetables. So most of the dishes that we would enjoy would be heavily lamb or chicken oriented. We eat a lot of heavily cooked food. We use a lot of ghee. We use a lot of dals. We use a lot of rice. And most of it is also quite spicy. Eggs are also a perennial favorite for all Parsis and, of course, liberal quantities of alcohol. <laughs> Do you have any sweets and desserts? The sweets and desserts are, there is one dessert known as kulfi, which is made from milk and soy and pistachio or something sweet, which is served similar to an ice cream at the end of a meal. But otherwise, I think Parsis do also enjoy a lot of the Indian sweets that are commonly available. And when you say alcohol, any particular type? 
Well, in the past, it used to be a lot of brandy and whiskey, but I think today now Parsis have sort of spread out into drinking a lot more wine, any type of spirit. I think people just enjoy drinking. And when you look back at four generations ago, when your great-grandfather came to here from India, was that because it was part of the British Empire? What would have been the instigator for that? Yes, I think the Parsis have traditionally been very closely associated with the British and have tended to follow the British wherever they went. I think India-China trade at that time was extremely large. And I think a lot of these young men uh, must have decided that it would be interesting and, and, and a bit of fun to go out to the Far East and see what happened. And of course, you know, as more and more of the community went out and came back extremely well off, I think it just sort of drew a lot more people out to this part of the world. Because I always think that it's incredibly intrepid at that point, you know. Presumably he would have come out on a steamship. Yes, I think you just bought a ticket on a steamship and you came out. Whether it was first, second class or steerage, you had your eye set on coming out to China and striking gold. Do you know much about, I mean, in terms of other than that he came, do you know much about him? Is it, did, he, did he write at all or have you got some of his business records? Or? Uh, no, most of the company records were established more by my grandfather. I think my great-grandfather, having set up the business, I think retired to India soon after that. So a lot of our records and memorabilia were destroyed during the Second World War, during the Japanese occupation, when our offices got ransacked. So we really don't have very much of historical information prior to the Second War. Yes, that's always tragic. Um, with, the, with your grandfather, so what was your company called? What was the trading company called? It was called KS Pabri and Sons Limited. It was uh, named after my great-grandfather. Going through now from the generations on, I mean, do you, with your daughters, for example, I mean, they're teenagers or? Uh, no, both of them are now married. Oh. Uh, <laughs> my, my older daughter is a Reuters correspondent and she's married and living in Hong Kong. And my younger daughter is a veterinary surgeon at the SPCA in Hong Kong and she's also married. And uh, are they taking the sort of party traditions forward? Well, both of them are, have married outside of the community. My younger one is married to an English boy and my older one is married to a Dutch boy. I think as far as traditions are concerned, I think they do both feel very Parsi in their outlook. I think we brought them up to understand and realize where they are and what they are. And hopefully they will continue some of the traditions that they have seen us perform in the last several decades. With the temple here, is that sort of at the centre of these festivals and celebrations? Uh, yes, prayer is always an important aspect of our faith and it, it normally precedes any festive occasion. So on the occasions of both Nauru's as well as the uh, Parsi New Year in the latter part of August, there is always a prayer ceremony that takes place before the community gets together and has cocktails, drinks and dinner. Yes, and the, the priest leads the prayer. Sometimes uh, we do have additional people who also pray alongside the priest. And it's one occasion where the community manages to get together in a single place and a community that prays together stays together. I mean, coming in, I mean, this might be a coincidence too, but coming into your office, you've got lovely Iranian carpets. Do you, as well as the, the Indian heritage, do you also hark back to the Iranian heritage? Well, in our case, I'm somewhat special in the fact that my wife is an Iranian. Uh, she's a Zoroastrian, and uh, she actually has family still in the little town of Yazd in central Iran, which we have visited in the past. Uh, so, yes, there is an Iranian aspect to our 
culture at home as well, because my wife is very proud of her Iranian heritage and culture, and she tries to bring a little bit of that into our day-to-day lives. And what's her name? Uh, Nilufa, which means water lily. And did you meet here? Uh, No, we met in Bombay. For somebody who's completely outside, so forgive my ignorance, when you describe your wife, you say Zoroastrian. So Zoroastrian is separate from Parsi? Yes. Zoroastrianism should not be confused with Parsi. Uh, Zoroastrianism refers to the faith. And the Parsis are the descendants of those refugees who left Iran some 1,200 years ago and settled in India. So in Iran, you would have an Iranian Zoroastrian, whereas in India, you would have a Parsi that follows the Zoroastrian faith. So it's important not to mix the two up. 1,200 years ago, they were thrown out of Iran. Well, they left because of the Muslim invasion of Iran. So in an attempt to preserve their faith, they left. And they came to India and were obviously offered a place to stay uh, where they were able to continue their faith, build places of worship and continue to live as a community. Generally, does it ha- do Parsis have their own language at all, or has that disappeared over time? The Parsis now speak the Indian language Gujarati, which is the main language spoken in the province of Gujarat, which is where most of them came and settled after having left Iran. So we have actually taken on the Gujarati language, we have taken on the Gujarati dress, which is a sari, and many, many aspects of our life have obviously drawn from Hindu culture and Hindu tradition. Yes, with your wife, would she wear a sari or does she have a completely different way of traditionally dressing? <laughs> no, she, she loves to wear a sari and she carries it off extremely well. Yes, I'm sure. But going back to you and your life in Hong Kong, I mean, your family has been here longer than many, many others in, in Hong Kong and many Hong Kong Chinese, of course. What is it about Hong Kong that you feel works for you and your community? I think Hong Kong as, as a whole has been an extremely good host to our small community. We enjoy freedom of worship. We enjoy a very decent standard of living. We we are well respected. We are left alone by the host community. We have a wonderful cemetery. We have a community center. And I, I think even in terms of bringing up children, this is a very good, safe environment within which a family can live and grow. And uh, in terms of, you mentioned the the cemetery, is that out at Happy Valley? Yes, that is the cemetery at Happy Valley. I think it was established sometime in the 1850s. And for Hong Kong, which is so space-starved, for us as such a tiny community, to have such a wonderful facility for us exclusively is really something that we treasure and appreciate. And I would imagine that there's some very interesting gravestones there over the years. Yes, that's right. Um, In fact, if if you do go over to the cemetery, you will see that the gravestones initially from the 1850s were mainly of young men, all in their 20s and 30s who had come out from India and all perished in the China region. We also have a small cemetery in Macau with about 30-odd graves, and we used to have a cemetery in Wampoa, which is this little island off the Canton coast. Oh, but that's gone, has it? Uh, the Wampoa Cemetery, I, I think the, the location has been found, but I don't think there are any more graves, whereas in Macau the cemetery exists and the graves exist. Is there a conscious effort amongst the Parsis also to write down their own history? Unfortunately not. I think other, as far as the community is concerned, we have a, a detailed uh, sets of minutes of all our annual general meetings of the Trust Fund, 
But there have been attempts by certain individuals to write of their own accord histories of our association. But we don't yet have an official compendium or a book that we have put together on our community. I think this is something that people seem to be pushing us into doing. And I think it's something that we should take up seriously as a community. But I think it's also nice if it's possible for a Parsi themselves to write about their own community, maybe even. I think that would be a nice uh, thing to do. I think the question is finding someone who has the time and the yes. wherewithal to do that. Uh-huh. In terms of, yeah, you would describe, and we've looked at uh, the lamb and the chicken with the, with the food. So the fact that, the, that it's very meat-orientated, does that come from the Iranian heritage? I think so, because Gujarat is a province where you have vegetarians. So I I think this meat-eating habit must have come from Iran. Is there any sort of specifics on how it's prepared in any way? I think it would be very similar to heavy North Indian-type food. If you're familiar with that sort of thing, I think you could imagine what Parsi cooking is like. Yes, yes. Are there any Parsi restaurants here? No, none in Hong Kong. I think there, there there may be one or two Indian restaurants that serve a few Parsi dishes, but uh, I think the best Parsi restaurant is found in our community centre where our own cooks prepare our own food for us. <laughs> Are you a regular? Uh, yes, we do enjoy that food, yes, but it can be quite heavy. Now, in terms of, I mean, I know this is a, I don't want to start moving into stereotypes, but I mean, it was fun. I was talking to uh, the uh, Hong Kong Indian comedian Vivek Mahbubani the other day, and he was saying, you know, you're supposed to do tech or you're supposed, you know, if you're an Indian, where he does comedy doesn't quite quite fit that mould. But would you have said that there are, looking back, whether it's the current generation or previous generations, are there sort of set types of jobs that, that you'll find more of the party community in? I think historically the Parsi community in in this part of the world was a mercantilistic community, but I think you would find that uh, my generation, in other words, children born in the 50s and the 60s, slowly began to move more and more into the professions. In most cases, it was our generation that was first sent off to university. We we, we are the first uh, within our community to actually have university educations, and I think Having experienced life outside of Hong Kong, having been trained in a profession, I think the idea of coming back to work in a family firm uh, did not seem very exciting or appealing. And I think today you will find that the vast majority of young children are entering the professions. And uh, out of the many, many Parsi firms that used to exist, I think there is only one trading firm left. And I'm not even sure if that firm will see a succession to the next generation. Yeah, life changes, doesn't it? Yes. Life changes. Yes. Now, when you, I mean, it was interesting when you said that um, with your wife, you've been back to Iran. So these days, is there, so there's now more of a Zoroastrian community still within Iran? Um, we we think that there are approximately 30,000 Zoroastrians left in Iran. The official view as far as the Iranian government is concerned is that they they are welcome to stay. But there are certainly curbs on what they are allowed to do. Uh, There is a limit to which they they, they can progress through the armed services. There is a limit to the degree that they can progress through the civil service as well. And being surrounded by a Muslim majority, I think the Zoroastrians are acutely aware of their minority status and try and keep as low a profile as possible not to arouse unnecessary interest. Within your home, which language do you speak? We would speak primarily English and perhaps um, intersperse it with a bit of Gujarati. And does your, so does your wife miss speaking 
uh, Iranian? Actually, my wife was born and brought up in India, so she's fluent in Hindi, Gujarati, Marathi, English. Her comprehension of Dari, which is a dialect, an Iranian dialect, comes from the fact that her parents used to speak that in India. So with four generations of your family here, how does it make you feel to know that you go back, you know, over, well, nearly a century here? It's a source of comfort, I think, that, that we actually have four generations, and my children are now the fifth. Uh, living in Hong Kong. And I, and, I, and I hope that our children also realize that Hong Kong has been very good to us and uh, that they should seriously consider spending their lives here as well. Where did you, when you were saying about where you went to school and things, where, where were you born and grew up? Uh, District-wise, uh, when I was born, uh, our family had a home on Wyndham Street. And uh, then two years later in 1957, we moved out to Repulse Bay and we've stayed there since. Oh, wow. So you grew up Repulse Bay in the 60s. And that's not bad. Yeah. Yes, that's true. And we're still there. You know, seeing the changes in the 60s and 70s, do you sometimes have nostalgic feelings about some of the buildings that have gone? I think it's sad that we have destroyed many of our uh, heritage buildings. But I do sense that there is now an awareness that these need, whatever we have left needs to be preserved. And, and I'm all for preservation today of whatever little we have left. And uh, in terms of, you know, when you were saying about your, your daughters moving forward, I mean, so one's a journalist and the other... The other is a vet, yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> so they're the second generation going to university. Oh, yes, that's right. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, was it a case of when you were the first generation? I mean, having said that, I'm the first generation in my family. So was it prior to that, was it a case of getting straight into the work as opposed to having an education? Or was it simply finances? No, I think it was a question of simply getting into work. I, I think, first of all, there was no wherewithal to travel. P people didn't have the funding to travel. And uh, at that time, I think people were just busy getting on with their lives. I, I think university educations were regarded more as a, a waste of time. Uh, you had work to do. You, you had the war. You finished the war. You had to get on with your life. You had to create a, a living for yourself. And as a result, I think a lot of people had their educations uh, put by the wayside. And what happened to your, what would it have been, your, well, your father or your grandfather during the war? Yes, exactly. Our, our family lived through both the wars in Hong Kong. During the Second World War, my, my mother's education uh, got disrupted and uh, she, she just about managed to finish uh, secondary school. And uh, after the war, things were such that she had no choice but to stop school and get in to start working with my father and grandfather and uh, revive the business. And what about them? Uh, they, they too, they, they, they had the same situation, though they were actually working pre-war. Uh, during the war from 1941 till 1944, 1945, there was absolutely no business. The, the office was ransacked. Our, our, our go-downs were, uh, were ransacked. And the family lived together with other families, uh, all, all in one, one building. And uh, they, they managed to survive by actually selling jewellery, cutting off bits and pieces of, of, of necklaces and rings and, and, and selling it for, uh, for food and uh, provisions. Very, very hard. And where would they have lived during the war? Uh, they were all living on Wyndham Street in, in the same building that I was uh, brought up in. And that was a tower block or a, a house? Or? Uh, no, at, at that time, uh, the, the, the system was that you had your warehouse on your ground floor, you had the office on the first floor and your living space on the second floor. And with the trading company, was that more, as you say, you mentioned the go-down. So where were they? They were... They were right below the office. You, you, you kept your, your, your goods below you. So they would then be 
boxed up and sent. So it wasn't a case that you had any retail space? Uh, no, this was not a retail operation. It was a wholesale operation. You bought, you, you, you transshipped, and uh, you continued to do that. Your father and grandfather would then go to other manufacturers and say, I'll have a 100 of those. Or? Yes, it, it, they basically acted on behalf of um, uh, importers in India who, who sent them their requirements. They would then go out and source the requirements, either do some conversion work in Hong Kong or ship directly out of China. Conversion work? Uh, it, it could be repackaging, it could be labelling, uh, it could be sizing, could be any of these things. And you were never tempted by that kind of trade? No, I think by the time I came back to Hong Kong, I felt that th this sort of business, the way it was continuing and with the changes that were taking place, that I, I didn't think that this was going to be sustainable going forwards. My thanks to Jimmy Manu Master, talking there on his Parsi heritage. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>